Christians tend to have a love-hate relationship um, with something we shouldn't have a love-hate relationship with, and that's Romans 8.28. Uh, Romans 8.28 says that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love Him and those who have been called according to His purposes. We kind of hate that verse because we know it's in the context of suffering and we know that we should have a good attitude and we can have joy even amidst suffering because God causes all things, even the suffering, to work together for our good and for those who are called according to His purposes. We know it's true. It's a great truth. It's a great reality, but sometimes we struggle with it. Well, I don't want you to struggle with it today, uh, and I'm not going to preach it this morning as you might normally think, but I want you to think of it a little bit differently. I would like you to think of Romans 8.28 as it would relate to the Apostle Paul and his gospel ministry. I would like you to think of it in terms of 2 Corinthians, which is where we're going to be this morning. In 2 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul is fighting to defend the legitimacy of his gospel ministry. And by so doing, he is fighting to defend the legitimacy of our gospel ministry. And I would invite you to consider the fact that he knows that even the attacks on the gospel, even the attacks on the work of Christ and the sufficiency of Christ and the attacks of him promoting salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, even all of those attacks, even the attacks I would suggest that happen today, that we don't like and are not pleasant in light of Romans 8.28, we can at least see the, the benefit, the fruit. Even those attacks against him and against his Christ, even the attacks against you and against your Christ, God is sovereign, God is in control, God is great, and God is causing all things, even those things, to work together for the good of those who love him and the, go- the good of those who have been called according to his purposes. And so, as we work through 2 Corinthians, and it's controversy, 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 attack, 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 polemics, arguments, remember this. We see Christ more clearly because of those attacks. We benefit today at understanding the work of Jesus better and more clearly because of those things that the Apostle Paul had to go through. And so, keep that in mind. It's something I need to keep in mind because we, we, the attacks grow old. But today we're going to be in 2 Corinthians 3. And 2 Corinthians 3, even though it's in the context of a letter and fighting, have produced some of the most wonderful, fragrant gospel fruit in all of human history. And it's because of the attacks. It's because of the need to defend as I worked my way through 2 Corinthians 3, I almost didn't preach this sermon today because I almost said, Uncle, I give, I'm going to preach an old sermon because I've got too much to do studying-wise. I was reading one commentary, I've been enjoying it so much so, and it got more and more confusing, and I was writing in the margins, where are you coming from? Why aren't you clear about law and gospel? Why do you seem to be blurring law and gospel? And finally, in one of the footnotes, he dedicated his special insights into an author I know denied justification by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. And I about had a nervous breakdown. Not really, but I just wanted to throw the book across the room. I thought, at least now I know. You answered my questions on the previous pages. But by God's grace, I think I'm 
may be ready to preach. <laughs> okay, so we're going to do 2 Corinthians 3 today. We're at least going to start it. I hope we get further. But what I found to be easiest would, would not be an outline, but to be thinking in terms of what caused him to say the things he says in the chapter. What's he fighting against? What are the accusations that provide him with a tee to put the ball on and to crush the ball in a good way? Okay? So the accusations uh, are, are things like this. The Apostle Paul doesn't have credibility. He doesn't have letters of recommendation that give him credibility the way we, the super apostles, who have lots of letters of recommendation, have. And so don't listen to what he says about Jesus. Another accusation would be that he has to defend, and this is the big one, the Apostle Paul puts too much emphasis on Christ and not enough emphasis on Moses. We preach Moses. We preach the law. He preaches Christ. And the last time we checked, we super apostles. See the S on our shirts? We super apostles. We know Moses is pretty important. We've read the Bible, right? We've seen the Ten Commandments. Charlton Heston right? Won an Oscar. Now, I'm being a little bit silly here. Or Christian Bale, for you younger people. Handsome, right? Box office. Nominated for Academy Awards. I think seven of them. We preach Moses. He just talks about Jesus. And going along with that, and that'll be the thrust of the big, the, the, the big argument, going along with that, he's too Christ-centered. He's too Grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone. And the last time we checked, there's a lot of emphasis in the Bible about Moses. Going along with that, we think there's not real power in preaching Christ. There's real power in giving people law. If we give them law, that'll really transform their lives. If you want to have your life transformed, and we've got the super apostle S on our shirts, listen to us because we're going to help you. We're going to give you so many principles, it'll drive you crazy. But we know it's good because Moses is the man. Okay? It's kind of that kind of stuff in the background. What else might I have on my list? Lacking credentials. Oh, overly confident, overly bold. Arrogantly so, it seems to them. And with those kinds of things in mind, let's begin working our way through the 18 verses. He, that, that sort of tees it up for him, and he's got to respond to those kinds of things. So let's dive right in. Chapter 3, verse 1. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? How can I read it more sarcastically? Because he means to be read sarcastically, right? Are we yet again just boasting? Are we beginning to commend ourselves yet again? Apparently that's one of the accusations. Always so bold, always so confident, always so strong and dogmatic. Are we commending ourselves again? I think the sarcasm is there and the implied answer is a blaring what? No! But it's there because of what he just said in the verses before. Everything is, in Christ we're bold. Because of Christ, we're united to Christ. It's Christ. Because of Christ, we know that God is pleased with us. Because of Him. Because He's our representative. It's in Christ. It's in Christ. It's in Christ. And that will, by the way, lead a person to being bold but not in a self-congratulatory way, but you're looking outside of yourself to someone else and people who don't understand the gospel interpret that as arrogant and bold and and it actually should be anything but. And then he asks another sarcastic question. I like sarcasm, by the way, so maybe this is why I like it. I hope it's a fruit of reading the Bible, not reading into the Bible. 
I always think of these passages when I think maybe my greatest opponent since I've been here who's tried to go after me publicly said, I'm way too sarcastic. Well, get a load of this, pal. (laughs) Verse 1 goes on to say, Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? Bah! Right? As if that's a word. It's the last thing in the world we would need would be letters of commendation to the Corinthians. Apparently these super apostles are saying, you know, we have all these letters recommending us to you. That all these other people would testify to our apostle, super apostleship. And the apostle Paul, he, how many letters of commendation has he brought you, Corinthians? And Paul's like, that's like the stupidest question on planet earth. He's going to go on to talk about why, but he's the one who preached the gospel to them. He's the one who planted the church. They know him personally. Letters of commendation? How ridiculous. This doesn't make any sense. And he continues on with this letter emphasis because apparently the the accusers are talking a lot about letters. So let's go ahead and continue on in verse... Oh no, verse 2. I almost skipped to verse 3. Verse 2, you yourselves are our letter of recommendation. Ah, that's good. It's it's warm. He's being strong and bold with them. But he's being warm-hearted as a pastor here. You yourselves are our letters. The fact that you, think of it in these terms, the fact that you Corinthians are now Christians. And now you love the one true God instead of the pantheon of gods. You you want proof of legitimacy of what we were preaching? You are proof. The fact that you were children of darkness and now you're children of light, you're, you're, you're the letter. It's a great thing that he says. Written on our hearts to be known and read by all. If you want proof of legitimacy and even of our care for you, it's the fact that you're Christians. Let's start there, he says. And then continuing on with the letter emphasis, and he's going to do this a lot. We're trying to do 18 verses. That's why we didn't read the whole thing ahead of time. Look what it says in verse 3. And you show that you are a letter from Christ. Delivered by us. It's great the way he's careful about how he even says things. He understands categories of his work and Christ's work and how God uses people, but we're not God. We're not the Holy Spirit. I love the carefulness. You're the letter from Christ. Delivered by us. Yes, God uses the proclamation of the gospel to bring about salvation. But actually, it's God's work in and through Christ who's done this. And he's acknowledging that. Perhaps unlike false teachers, he's being a lot more careful with this. Written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God. Notice he's definitely saying what those guys have written by ink To back up their support, we have something far more significant. The living God has brought about salvation in your life and He's used us 
He's saying we're better. He's saying they're illegitimate. And he'll say as much so later in the letter. Not on tablets, if you keep reading in verse 3, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. And what I did in my notes is I circled that last part of human hearts and the spirit of the living God and drew the connection. Who can do spiritual heart surgery? And to use other biblical terminology, to take out a heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh, a living heart, spiritually speaking. Paul can't do that. The super apostles can't do that. Charles Finney couldn't do that, even though he claimed to be able to do that. Only the living God can do that. And by the fact that you have new hearts, he's saying to them, shows that the living God worked in your life and he most certainly, most definitely, most positively used the proclamation of the gospel we talk about. It's great what's happening. It's great what he's arguing for here. Look at your own life. I think, well, I don't want to digress too much. I was encouraged this week, by the way, one of my favorite theologians talked about how it's good to remember that this is a letter and not in so many words, but in maybe even more pointed words. He said, that really helps me to understand why it's such a confusing thing to read. He even suggested perhaps, he said, I don't know this for sure, but maybe it's one of those things like where Paul, who's very emotional about this, even though he's writing under the inspiration, it's a human divine letter. It's almost, you get the sense that he wrote and then walked away and came back and wrote more, even if he was um, having it transcribed. And he put it this way, that writer that I like so much. It's not like Paul was sitting in an ivory tower writing a systematic theology. Okay? This great stuff we're reading in this personal, caring letter is the stuff that systematic theology textbooks are built on. But we're getting it a little bit rawer here. Past, more pastoral, though. More caring. Showing these folks how the true gospel of grace in Christ must be protected and preserved. And he's in the business of doing that. Now there's a transition to the biggest issue of all, no doubt. This issue about Moses and the law and should we go back, old covenant versus new covenant and that sort of thing. Because he's already already hinting at this because he talks about at the end of verse 3, note there, um, tablets of stone. And then he uses the contrast word, but, and then tablets of human hearts. So he's, gonna, he's introducing this topic and he's, this contrast, tablets of stone and the tablets of the human heart. And he's also going to really emphasize the Holy Spirit. And I want you to know ahead of time, that's what kind of talk, what kind of covenant talk is that? That's new covenant talk. We know so because in verse 6 he's going to call it the new covenant. But I want you to know before we get to verse 6 where he calls it the new covenant, he's already using that kind of, that kind of thinking. Okay? Tablets of stone, old covenant. Uh, tablets of the, the human heart, new covenant. Spirit uniquely working, new covenant talk. Okay? And, and covenant is really important to Christians. Even though we don't use it every day in our, uh, our language, covenant is really important. I know one reason why everyone in this room who's a Christian thinks it's important, and there's a glowing illustration right down front here. Right? 
Every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we talk and we quote Jesus, who says what? This is the what? The new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you, right? And so we're really into covenant. We might not know what it means, but we're really into it. Okay, so let's think in terms of he's going to he's introducing the contrast between old covenant and new covenant, which is huge for us because it has everything to do with Jesus. So let's warm up to the idea and the contrast. They want to go back to the old covenant, and the apostle Paul says, "Don't even think about it. Why in the world would you? That would be crazy and asinine and backward and insulting to God." Covenant means agreement. A covenant is a formal agreement. Uh, marriage is a covenant. A formal agreement, and it has to do with relationships. And we could be more technical, but I think that really helps. If we think this is an agreement, it has to do with a relationship, and we're talking about the new covenant, our relationship with God in and through Christ, our mediator. Moses was the mediator of the old covenant. Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant. Let me just read a couple of texts help us think of these in these terms. Hebrews 12, 24, Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. It's a better covenant. It's a new covenant. Hebrews 9, 15, therefore he is the mediator of a new covenant. If you want to turn to Jeremiah, you can turn to Jeremiah. Jeremiah 31 is the classic new covenant text. And as you're thinking about whether to turn there or not, um, you don't need to, but I'm going to read Jeremiah 31. Even the Old Testament itself in the Old Covenant world speaks of a new covenant coming. Okay, So this isn't a plan B somehow that we made up after Jesus showed up. The, the Old Covenant folks, the Old Covenant people, men and women are waiting for the better covenant, waiting for the new covenant, waiting for the stone heart by the power of the Spirit uniquely. They're anticipating this, and it's going to be centered upon a person. Listen to Jeremiah 31, verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. Listen to this carefully, please. I will put my law within them, and I will write it, my law, on their hearts. External to internal, we're going to need to talk about how does that work and why. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people, and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor, and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sins no more. Moses even looked forward to it, looked forward to it. Jesus said, for if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. Deuteronomy 18, 15, listen to this. The the, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, Moses is not saying, I'm the man, and you need to always be Moses-centric. Like me, from among you, from your brothers, it is to him you shall listen. So as we come back to 2 Corinthians 3, he's now beginning to contrast Old Covenant, New Covenant. 
even though he hasn't used the word yet, he's using the verbiage and he's going to use the word, and his opponents are saying, we're going to give you more Moses. That makes us more legitimate. And the Apostle Paul saying, perish the thought. Verse 4, 2 Corinthians 3, 4. Such is the confidence. You want to know where our boldness comes from that you're accusing us about? For such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. He's already started talking New Covenant, and he's going to talk more New Covenant, that we have confidence through Christ toward God. Where he's going is, we have a better mediator. We have a perfect mediator. Where he's going to go, we have a righteous mediator. How can we be so sure of ourselves? Well, to use an old English word, we can be so sure of ourselves because of our surety, because of our certainty in Christ as a better mediator. Jesus Christ the righteous. That's where the boldness and confidence comes. It comes through Christ. He's the fulfillment of the new covenant. He's the new covenant mediator. That's how we can be so bold. Think about how the accusation might have played out. If we're the super apostles. Well, when we read the Old Testament and we read about Moses, we learn that God is righteous. And there's fire, and there's all kinds of tumultuous things, and it's dangerous, and it's scary, and and you should be anything but bold. And so look at us. We're not bold. Because... We're Moses-centric. And the Apostle Paul, with his boldness and so certain about everything, clearly he's not in the know. Well, they're kind of on to something, I would suggest. Especially in my mind as I read what Paul writes elsewhere, like in Romans chapter 10. But they don't see God as righteous enough. Their, their mindset, no doubt, is God is so righteous and, and dangerous and, and, and furious. And, and when we read these texts, you know, we'd, we'd, we'd better not be bold and we'd better really get busy. And we'd better really be loyal. We'd better really be faithful. And we'd better give people lots of principles to follow. Laws. And the Apostle Paul would suggest, you don't understand how righteous. Because if you really understood how righteous, you would know you and all of your truckloads, boatloads of principles are never going to make it. What you need is to see how righteous he is. Again, I'm thinking like Romans 10. So you look outside of yourself to a better mediator, the mediator of the new covenant, Jesus Christ the righteous. And when you do, you can then be bold, not about yourself, preacher man, but about him. And you boast in him, in him, in him, in him, in him. And that's going to be wrongly interpreted as you arrogant such and such. It's not what it is. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Verse 5, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, 
But our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers. I even like that. He's stressing sufficiency, and then he uses the word servant, ministers. So there might be sufficiency, but we're still servants because it's actually not about us. We're serving right? We're, we're, we're delivering something that comes from someone else and we're under their authority, sufficient to be ministers. Here we go. Here, here's our designation of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. That's why we're so bold. It's a better covenant. It's the long-expected covenant. It's the one we've been waiting for covenant. It's the fulfillment covenant. This is it. This is what all of human history has been waiting for. It's always been types and shadows, to borrow from other texts. And now we have the substance who is Christ. Why why would we not want to be bold about that? We certainly would. Note the contrast between the letter at the end of verse 6. Not of the letter, he's using that as a designation for law, but of the Spirit, he's using that as a designation for new covenant, Christ, Spirit of Christ, the one who applies the work of Christ. Law condemns. Spirit applies the work of Christ and brings justification, salvation. Verse verse 6, let's call it 6b, the latter part of 6 is is off the charts good. You, 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 whatever you paid for admission today, you should have paid more. Um, <laughs> the latter part of six, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Using that as a synonym for law, Mosaic law, it kills, it slays. You want more Moses? It kills, it slays. That's not what you want. There's not hope in that. What you want would be the Spirit gives life. Using that as as a shorthand label for new covenant reality, the Spirit of God working on the heart, bringing about regeneration, granting saving faith, granting repentance, applying the work of Jesus. This is the contrast. The contrast is is crucial. It's even crucial now, even though we're not facing the same kinds of issues. Where do we go for life? I've got to do this. I've got to do this. I've got to do this. It's not going to work out. And you'll never be bold, by the way. You'll never sleep boldly. But in Christ, you rest. You sleep boldly. Life is found in Him, the better mediator. I love this. This is, this is what communion is supposed to remind us of. It kills. It's not that the law is bad either, by the way. It's good, righteous, and holy. The Apostle Paul will say it's good, righteous, and holy. But for you as a sinner, it kills. It's not good news. But the Spirit, new covenant reality, applying the work of Jesus to you, better mediator, life hope, confidence. As an aside, all kinds of weird things have been done with verse 6. There's still weird things done with verse 6. Some charismatics won't want to use this as um, beating up on you because you're too into the Bible uh, and they're into the Spirit. You just need to get over the Bible and get into the Spirit and then you'll figure out how you can have gold fillings in your mouth or whatever it is. 
in the context, that's clearly not what he has in mind. Let's be less biblical and more into emotionalism. Clearly, based upon the flow of things, that's not what he has in mind. Uh, it's not what Trent said when Trent said that um, the letter kills, that's the Bible, and the Spirit is the living church. You have to have the living church to sort out the Bible. It's clearly not what's going on. Um, it's clearly not what the radical Anabaptists said when they were refuting Martin Luther. They, they, they were down on Martin Luther because Martin Luther wanted to go back to the Bible. What does the Bible teach, by the way, about the New Covenant? <laughs> what does the Bible say? According to the Spirit. And the radical Anabaptists, this is an aside, I know, but that's what I do sometimes. The radical Anabaptists uh, who claimed d- direct divine revelation, they were like uh, yesterday's charismatics. We don't need the Bible because the letter kills but the Spirit gives life. And so God just talks to us. We don't need pastors. We don't need Bibles. We don't need churches. We don't need any of those things. But you you and I can see when we're reading it in in the flow of things, it is a grand, grand, transforming, reforming, cataclysmic, wonderful, delivering, do more, try harder, the strict requirements of the law will kill you for now and eternity. He's talking about Mosaic law, old covenant reality. What you need is Christ as a better mediator and the Spirit applies the work of Christ. The Spirit gives you a new heart of life. (sighs) I love it. I so love it. It's it's cracking the code on the whole thing. There there might be things I'm totally getting wrong this morning. Someone shout amen. (laughs) Right? I, I don't have it all figured out, but but... But I would go to the wall for that. Regardless of the details, that, that's surely what he's getting at here. It's such a great distinction. It's such a clear distinction. I even want to, I even want to use this outside of this particular debate when people even just use the New Testament and just give me more and more and more and more things and they spin it as if if I do all of these things, then maybe eventually God will accept me. And in principle, I want to go back to this passage and say, law, principles, kill. Spirit, life. Give me spirit. Give me Jesus. Give me gospel. Give me hope. Give me confidence. Where did Paul get this confidence? He's so arrogant. No. He's resting in someone who's already done the work. Well, I'm having way too much fun this morning, so we should probably move on to the next passage. How about some some great unpacking of this in verse 7? Now, if the ministry of death... (laughs) What a way to frame it. The ministry of death? Old Covenant? He's calling it the ministry of death? Carved in letters on stone? We don't have to guess about what that's shorthand for came with such glory, such greatness, such grandeur that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end. Ministry of death. Great! Awesome! We're not saying it wasn't great and awesome, but we are saying it was coming to an end. I like to say it has has a born-on date on it, like some of your beer cans do, or food cans. 
It, it, it was always designed to come to terminus. It was always designed to come to fulfillment because even the old covenant world talked about a new covenant. And so it, it was coming to an end. It was great, but coming to an end. It, it plays its part in human history and in, re- in the redemptive drama of history unfolding. Types and shadows. Great types and shadows. Awesome types and shadows. And then verse 8 says, by way of contrast, will not the ministry of the Spirit, the new covenant ministry, have even more glory? Implied answer, class. Yes, of course. He's not an anti-old covenant guy. He just wants to see it for what it really is. And he wants to confront the super apostles for now corrupting the true by going back to the old because that's what happens when you go back to the old you reject the the new the true everything in its place shadow substance verse 9 for if there was if there was glory and there was in the ministry notice what he calls it now of condemnation the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory one is greater than the other. But do, do observe the particulars. Ministry of condemnation. He called it a ministry of death. Ministry of condemnation. Ministry of righteousness. Hang, hang in there. We're going we're to be done soon. Ministry of condemnation. Condemnation is a, a law word. Um, Paul uses it in contrast to what in Romans chapter 5? We have condemnation negatively for violating the law, but for Christ keeping the law, upholding the law, we have what by faith? Thank you. Justification, which is being declared a keeper of the law. So condemnation, you're declared by the judge a violator of the law. Justification, you're declared by the judge a upholder of the law. Okay, if we're borrowing from Paul in Romans 5. Justification being declared what? Righteous. Righteous means an upholder of God's law. Take all that that you know, thank you for knowing things, I'm glad, and read the verse. The ministry of condemnation, breaking the law, because everyone does as sinners. The ministry of righteousness. Righteousness is upholding the law. And things just got super interesting, I think. What are the two contrasting ministries? Ministry of condemnation, because we're lawbreakers, we can't meet the requirement. And now we have Paul saying, my ministry is the ministry of righteousness. Law upholding. It's another way of saying, as he says elsewhere, my ministry of righteousness is is my ministry of justification. Preaching justification by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. It's, It's really good that we see here, he's not contrasting law with law. In a million years, he's not doing that. Ministry of condemnation, law-breaking. Ministry of righteousness, positively. Ministry of law-upholding. And you go, how does that work? I hope, I hope, I hope, I hope you're thinking about that. How how would you answer the question if, if today, afterward, you find yourself at Jimmy John's as I'm going to do, and I'm unwrapping my unwitch. I hate unwitches. I want the bread. When you're on a diet, you have to eat an unwitch. Anyway, I digress. If, if, if you're going to Jimmy John's or wherever you're going, raising canes, ungodly people don't go there on Sunday. 
and someone were to say to you, what does it mean to contrast the ministry of condemnation with the ministry of righteousness? Well, you'd say he's contrasting the law with the law. It's true. Condemnation, violating the law. Righteousness, upholding the law. And now if someone asks you, how does that work? Why is that important? Why is that exciting? Why did the pastor stand up there and perspire like he did? He's so excited about it. Because it leaves us in this place where the only answer is Jesus. Jesus Christ, to quote the Apostle Paul elsewhere, the what? Righteous. Jesus Christ, the upholder of God's law on behalf of everyone who would ever believe in him so that we might be justified, that we might be declared righteous. It is, just knowing just a few words, and you go, this is great. This is fantastic. This is off the charts kind of stuff. I love the designation, ministry of righteousness. True gospel ministry. Omaha Bible Church seeks to have a true gospel ministry. I hope you seek to have a true gospel ministry. I hope a pastor like me seeks to have a true gospel ministry like the Apostle Paul. Our ministry, if it's a true gospel ministry, is a ministry of righteousness. We are telling sinners who are under a ministry of condemnation, naturally, mosaic or otherwise, how God can accept them so that you can boldly go to God. And let me tell you about righteousness. It means upholding God's law. You can't do it. You don't do it. You don't love God perfectly with heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus Christ came as the righteous and gave himself up for us to die a sinner's death, a lawbreaker's death, so that we can have our sin atoned for, our law-breaking atoned for, our unrighteousness atoned for, and then positively to provide us with the positive upholding of God's law, positive righteousness, so that God can declare us righteous because actually we have Christ's righteousness. And if you're thinking that makes too much sense to be true, I like the way you think. (laughs) It's the answer. And so the Apostle Paul is pulling his apostolic hair out. Why in the world, why in God's green earth would you listen to the wackadoodle crazy guys, super apostles, when you by faith have Christ's righteousness? We are ministers of righteousness. That's who we are. And that's why we're bold. And that's why you can be bold before God. It really is extraordinary. As often as you do this in remembrance of me, this is new covenant reality. So what do we do? Our tendency is to jump on that spiritual treadmill, give us more Moses, Christian Bale, Charlton Heston. Great movies. Being a little sarcastic, right? Our default mode as sinners, though, is just give us more because we can do it. Give us more because we can do it. Give us more because we can do it. I call it a spiritual treadmill. It's appealing to sinners. So we need an Apostle Paul to say, even in the midst of a battle, no, you need perfect righteousness. And perfect righteousness is found in the great new covenant Savior who's a better mediator, Jesus Christ the righteous. In chapter 5, he's going to unpack this masterfully. I think it's masterful in chapter 3. I can't even get done with chapter 3. 
but what a great designation and explanation. We need to stop here um, because I'll, I want you all to still love me and care about me and come back next week. Oh, I want to read 2 Corinthians 5. I'll read it later. Um, we're going to stop there uh, for this morning and we are going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Um, this is designed to look a lot like Passover and that's on purpose. Types and shadows. Substance belongs to Christ. He's our great... The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians, our Passover lamb. Okay? His work is done. His work is ultimate. All of those grand, wonderful Old Testament pictures were designed to find their substance and resting place in Jesus. And so, let eating and drinking remind you that Jesus paid it all and that God accepts you in Him. Boldly so. Because Jesus is sufficient. We're going to ask that, I'm going to pray in a second, then we're going to be served the bread and we're going to eat it together. We're going to be served the wine, we're going to drink it together. Have this be a great time of worship as you consider Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for the men and women and the boys and girls who are here this morning. Thank you for the great reality of Jesus being our great surety, our great confidence, our great certainty. It seems too good to be true that you're not counting our trespasses against us. It seems too good to be true that those violations that we've committed were nailed to the cross. And we are thankful for such good news. As one of the disciples said, Lord, We believe, but help us with our unbelief that we might understand these things even more and be transformed even more according to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen.